You know, there's a lot of really good actors out there in the world. We enjoy watching them and in our favorite movies and things of that sort. And we can get really inspired by a performance. And, and it's so easy to admire these actors for the roles that they play and, and what we see on the screen. But there is a problem with doing this you will likely be disappointed to find out that the person that you admire on the screen is really just a very good actor. Oftentimes, actors are not at all like the characters that they portrayed. They, they don't really believe what they said in the movies, their lines and such. They don't really live that kind of a life that you see up on the screen. You know, good actors make for some great movies, but there is no place for acting as a follower of Jesus Christ. You will never live as Christ has called you to live if you don't truly believe what the Bible says about God, about Christ, about heaven, about hell, about sin, about eternity. And in our passage today, Paul is showing us that if you don't believe the dead will be raised, then you won't live like a disciple of Christ. So let's take a look at our text this morning, and then we'll pray and begin. So chapter 15, let's read verses 29 to 34. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then Why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought, and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God, and I speak this to your shame. Let's pray. Father, you are the author of the Word. In it, you reveal yourself and make known to us the path of life. We recognize that that, uh, we need your help in understanding your Word and applying it to our lives. And we know that your spirit is more than capable of opening our eyes, even blind ones, so that we might see Christ more clearly, understand your your word better, and then help us by your power to be doers of your word and to live in light of it. We don't want to be saying one thing and doing another. We don't want to be proclaiming that we believe something that we're really not living in light of. We want to be disciples of Christ in the fullest sense and follow him wherever he may lead, at whatever cost that may bring. We know that that's not anything too great oftentimes for us in this life. Maybe losing some friends. Maybe not gaining some of the treasures of this world. But Lord, we don't know what's to come. We know we need to be rooted and grounded in your truth, especially the truth that there is a resurrection. The dead will rise. There is more to this life than just living it and dying. 
And so, Lord, would you grip us today with the truths of your resurrection and the practical effect that that should have on our daily lives. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So while all in the Corinthian church believed that Christ rose from the dead, there were some who who could not see the point in the resurrection of the dead. Greek culture was, was rooted in dualism where the spirit was seen as good and matter was evil. What, what purpose could there be for a body in the afterlife? But as, as Paul makes clear, this issue is, is no small matter. In fact, he's just finished a powerful theological argument for both the inevitability and the necessity of the resurrection of believers who have died. And he, we went through this last week in verses 20 through 28. And his argument where was, there was that the dead will rise and death will be defeated because God, who is supreme over all, raised Christ, who is sovereign over life. And if you recall, back in verses 13 through 19, Paul presented the theological absurdity of saying that there's no resurrection of the dead. We walked through that. We saw that if the dead are not raised, well, then neither is Christ. And your faith and your hope are futile. Now, similarly, in our passage today, Paul again brings to light negative consequences. Only this time he's more, he's more focused on showing them the practical absurdity of denying the resurrection. He's shown us the theological absurdity. Now he's going to show us the practical absurdity, how it affects how we live our lives. Your life becomes an absurdity if you're not living in light of the resurrection. So he appeals to them here with two examples. One from a practice of baptism, which he says is on behalf of the dead, and we'll talk about what he's talking about here. And then the other is from his own personal brushes with danger in his ministries. So these two examples show that baptism and personal sacrifice will be meaningless if there's no resurrection of the dead. But even more important, he he concludes in this section with with an exhortation to godliness and righteous living. And it's, and it's here where we see that Paul is, is making a connection between their denial of a resurrection and the various aspects of, of moral depravity amongst the Corinthians that we've been seeing him addressing throughout the entire letter. He's saying, this very well may be the reason why you guys are living the way you're living, because you are denying that there's a resurrection of the dead, that there is a future. You're not living in light of it. And so this morning I want us to see that believing the resurrection is essential to following Christ. That's the title for the message this morning. Believing the resurrection is essential to following Christ. Remember, we're not talking about the resurrection of Christ. They did believe that. We're talking about the resurrection of believers. So we know the resurrection of Christ is an essential truth of the gospel. And Paul showed us this in the first 11 verses of the chapter. 
You can't be a Christian if you deny that Christ rose from the dead. Now, Paul wants them to see this. Knowing the dead will be raised is essential to living your life as a disciple of Christ. That's the main point of what we're looking at this morning. Knowing the dead will be raised is essential to living your life as a disciple of Christ. You can't just say that you believe it like some actor in a play while not really thinking it is going to happen. How do you know if you really believe that there is a resurrection of the dead? You look at how you're living. You look at how you're living. See, Paul goes about it by exposing the contradictions between what the Corinthians say they believe and how Christ calls men and women to live as his disciples. So being raised with Christ is pictured in the act of baptism. But there's no purpose for baptism if what it pictures doesn't exist. Why do it? Why would Paul risk death on a daily basis when he's preaching the gospel? Why would he sacrifice personally if the dead are not raised? See, if there's no resurrection, there's no coming day when our works are truly assessed and and revealed by God. It would make much more sense just to live each day for yourself. Maximize your own pleasures because when you die, that's it. And Paul wants them to see that, see, if if you remove the resurrection and the future rewards that we anticipate as members of God's kingdom, then you have removed one of the greatest motivations that the Lord gives for living as a disciple of Jesus Christ. But first, though, I want to take a moment and just discuss what it is that the Corinthians were denying about the resurrection. Now, there are other places in the New Testament where we are told about those who in some way they denied the resurrection of the dead. Uh, We've already talked about dualism and the Greeks who saw no purpose really for a bodily resurrection because matter was evil. Uh, The Greeks likely believed in the immortality of the soul, but um, we would go on though only as spirits, nothing physical. Remember when... Paul preached in Athens and they sneered at the idea of the resurrection of the dead. They dismissed the idea of a God who would raise the dead so that they may stand in judgment. They dismissed it as foolish, unworthy even of their consideration. But in addition to the Greeks, we also have the Jewish Sadducees. They rejected the resurrection of the dead. They were anti-supernaturalists, right? No angels, no spirits, no miracles, No resurrection. And it was the Sadducees, if you recall, who asked that ridiculous question about whose wife a certain woman would be in the resurrection if she'd had several husbands. Jesus answered them by telling them, basically, you need to go read your Bibles. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't understand the scriptures and you don't understand the power of God. And then he went on to defend the resurrection of the dead by quoting from Exodus. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. He was telling them that these men are alive right now. And they would one day be reunited with their glorified bodies in the resurrection. And he was also, I think here, saying in effect that he's the God of 
Now, we're not told exactly what the Corinthians were denying about the resurrection, other than that they denied a future bodily resurrection. So it's very likely, we're not told, but it's very likely that because of the influence of dualism, that they had thought that resurrection meant nothing more than the reanimation of a corpse. Such an idea was abhorrent to them, as it should be to anyone, right? It's, it's bad enough living 70 to 80 years in a body that's failing, breaking down. Can you imagine somehow being connected with that body for all eternity? That's likely what, why Paul then, if you'll notice here in, in verse 35, that's why he goes into discussing the nature of the resurrected body. He wants them to understand the centrality of a physical resurrection to the victory of Christ over the dead. You, 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 what you are is not just spirit. You are also a body. All that you are is a mixture of material body and immaterial spirit. And all that you are was made by God in his image. And so that means that if Christ does not return in your lifetime, when you die, the immaterial part of you, your spirit, will go to be with the Lord, while the material part of you, your body, will go into the ground or into the fire so that it can return to dust. But see, when Christ returns, your spirit is going to be reunited to the other half of you, your body. And in the resurrection, this is, this is what we're going to get into in the next section when we get there, but in the resurrection, you're not getting another body. You're getting your body. Only now it has been made imperishable. Now, like I said, the next section is going to where, where we cover all the details, but my point is that it's the same body that you have had all your life. Only now it's been made beautifully and wonderfully fit for God for all eternity. And just, just pause for a second. Don't, don't, please don't feel reluctant about the body that you're going to have the same body you have now for all eternity. Because you're thinking only in terms of what it looks like and feels like and acts like right now. Right? You're, I guarantee you, whatever it is that you don't like about your body as it is right now, whether too short, too, full, too tall, too fat, too skinny, too hairy, too weak, to whatever, fill in the blank, whatever it is that, that you don't like about it, it's not going to be anything of concern to you that's going to hinder you or embarrass you or fail you ever again. That's what's coming. Now, here's the key question. Why is this significant? Why does it have to be these bodies that we have right now and not some other remade body? Why is the resurrection of your body a big deal? The resurrection of your body from the grave is the full and final confirmation that death has been defeated. It would be a hollow victory over death if God can't give you back the very body that sin and death destroyed. Through Christ, God has subdued every enemy that was opposed to Him. We saw this in the last section. He is all in everything and everywhere. Wherever death once reigned, 
Christ now reigns, and He reigns absolutely, and He reigns unopposed. Whatever sin and death ravaged, destroyed, Christ, the victorious Savior, He reverses it. He restores it fully and forever. It's nothing for Him to command the molecules that He used to form your body to reassemble from wherever they may be, whether they be in the ground or deep in the sea or scattered throughout outer space. But He brings them back together now in an imperishable, perfected body. Our victorious Savior God is going to reunite the material part of you to the immaterial part of you so that you, the full, the complete, the whole, the perfect you can be with Him and serve Him and enjoy Him and glorify Him to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So some against, some amongst the Corinthians were denying that the dead will be raised. He says there in verse 29, at all. He says, if the dead are not raised at all, verse 29, in such a view that the dead would not be raised, it diminished Christ's victory over death. But, as Paul's going to point out here, it also removed the incentive to live for Christ in the world and not be of the world. You see the way such wrong thinking about the future would impact how you live in the present. It may only be some in the church who Paul is directly addressing as denying the resurrection. But it doesn't stay that way for long. Wherever there is a wrong view about Christ or His Word that goes unaddressed in the church, it doesn't just stay there. It spreads like gangrene. And that's why Paul takes this entire chapter, chapter 15, to make sure that the church knows that the dead will be raised because it's essential to living your life as a disciple of Christ. So the first way that the resurrection causes you to live rightly as a disciple of Christ relates to baptism. Knowing the dead are raised means that you see baptism as pivotal, not purposeless. You need to see baptism as pivotal, not purposeless. Verse 29 says, Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? So this statement by Paul has puzzled many students of the Bible, almost from when it was first written down all the way up through the dead. Here is what we can say about this verse. Paul knew what he was talking about when he's talking about the baptism of the dead. The Corinthians knew what Paul was talking about when he was talking about the baptism of the dead. But almost everyone since that time has been confused as to what Paul is talking about when he's talking about baptism of the dead. So what Paul means by this phrase, those who are baptized for the dead, it presents us with, a pretty significant conundrum. But, the, but here's the key. The gist of Paul's argument here is clear. The gist of his argument is clear. 
Baptism of the dead makes no sense if there is no resurrection. That's why he's saying this. Baptism of the dead makes no sense if there's no resurrection. So that part is clear. It's the specifics that leave us kind of scratching our heads as to what he's referring to. Clearly, though, Paul is saying that to think that there is no resurrection of the dead, it presents a contradiction as to what baptism is all about. If there's no resurrection, well, there's no real purpose for baptism. But we know that baptism is not purposeless, don't we? We are commanded by Christ himself in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. We're commanded to make disciples and baptize them. And so baptism is not purposeless. It's pivotal in the life of the believer. And so let's try to understand the point here that Paul is making. The most natural way to understand Paul's words is that Paul is referring to some kind of a practice of what we would call vicarious baptism. Vicarious baptism. That's where living people are baptized on behalf of dead people so that the blessings, the benefits of baptism would somehow be imparted to those who have already died. Now, even though that's what Paul, on the surface, at least from the words we're reading on the page, that that it seems like that's what he's saying, there's a couple very significant problems with taking it to mean that, that he's talking about a form of vicarious baptism. First, we don't have any historical or biblical precedent for vicarious baptism. We know of no such practice taking place in the Corinthian church. Uh, We know of some heretical groups that did practice vicarious baptism, but they didn't show up for another hundred or so years down the road. And so it doesn't mean that it didn't happen. It doesn't mean that that's not something that was somehow being practiced in the Corinthian church. Only that we know of nothing like this happening at this time. Now, there's another problem that I think is, is more significant and that leads me to conclude that that's not what Paul is talking about here, a form of vicarious baptism. If Paul is describing that here, then he's describing a practice that contradicts his own understanding of both justification by grace through faith and baptism as a personal response to that grace. See, baptism is a response of the believer to their faith in Christ. It's not something that is done on behalf of someone else. We have no basis in Scripture to believe that we can perform any religious rite on behalf of someone else, such that it benefits them, especially if that person is already dead. And so the question then boils down to is, is who are the dead here that are being baptized? We've already said that it can't refer to living people being baptized for others who are physically dead, or we would even throw into that spiritually dead, right? As in unbelievers. That is a to think that you can do something, some religious rite or practice that has some kind of a benefit on someone else. Like some, I'm not talking about praying for someone else. That's a different category. We're talking about a religious rite. A ceremony, so to speak. If you 
there's nowhere in the Bible where it says that you do something, something of a, a right or an ordinance in the church that can have an effect or a salvific effect on someone else. That's superstitious. That's a ritualistic view that the Bible doesn't in any way speak of or condone. There's nothing anyone can do to cause another person to be saved. If that were possible, we would do it. If there was a way to cause another person for, to be saved, we would do it. Now, I can speak the gospel to someone. I can pray that they receive Christ, but I am powerless to make that happen. I absolutely cannot do that for someone who is dead. Once someone has died, there's not a second chance. There's no biblical precedent for doing anything on behalf of those who have already died. It's pointless to pray for those who have died, let alone think that you can be baptized for them. Hebrews 9.26 makes this very clear. You can hold your finger here and jump over to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9 verse 26 says... Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. See, Christ alone, he says here, put away your sin. Nobody can do this for you. Nobody else can put away your sin. Every individual has to see their need for Christ as the one who can put away their sin and turn to Him in repentant faith. Receive the pardon that He freely gives. See, if you reject His offer of pardon in life and then you die, what does the author of Hebrews say? After this comes judgment. There is no second chance. There is no do-over. There is no reincarnation. There is no purgatory. There is no get out of hell free car. It is a lie of the devil that you can correct your mistakes or learn your lessons in some future existence. It is appointed for man that after this comes judgment, after this life. Jesus made this clear when he told us about the rich man and Lazarus. When Lazarus died, he went to paradise calls it Abraham's bosom. But the rich man went to hell where he was in agony and he went there instantly. There was no second chance. Now, is it possible that there were some in the church who perhaps believed in vicarious baptism wrongly, right? And Paul knew this. And all he was doing here in this statement about the baptism of the dead back in, in Corinthians 15 is that he's just using that practice as as a, uh, an example of what would be absurd to do if you don't believe in a baptism of the, uh, if you don't believe in a resurrection of the dead. And some are saying, well, he's just, he's so focused on his point that he's not bothering to correct that wrong belief. He's just simply pointing it out to make his point about the resurrection. Now, I think you know Paul as well as I do as we read him. Do you think that that sounds like something Paul would do? 
that he would pass over this idea of a vicarious baptism that he knows is wrong, that he knows contradicts the whole concept of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, that you do as an individual response to the gospel. Is he just going to pass over that and, and refer to it and not make a comment about it? This whole letter is filled with Paul correcting the Corinthians about all kinds of wrong thinking and acting. Is he going to let this false understanding of vicarious baptism just slide? I don't think so. And so if, if the dead who are, bapti- are being baptized here, if it can't refer to other people, that would be vicarious baptism, well then Paul must be referring to living people who are being baptized. In other words, I would say, this is, I'm giving you my two cents on what Paul is talking about here. I think he's just talking about ordinary baptism. That's all he's talking about. He's just doing it in a way that sounds a bit confusing to our ears. So when he says, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? I think the dead here is just a metaphor for the condition of believers who are being baptized. Um, There's a lot that's going essentially for this view. I'm not going to go into all the possible views that are out there. I'm just going to stick with this one and move on. Uh, This view has a lot going for it. It's the view of all the early Greek fathers such as of the church such as Irenaeus and Clement and Athanasius and John, Chrysostom and so forth. It fits the context here of talking about baptism being pointless if there's no resurrection of the dead because baptism pictures resurrection. But most importantly, it fits with Paul's own theology about baptism. Turn to Romans chapter 6. Let's see where Paul talks about what baptism is all about. In chapter 6, in verse 3, he says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Now, when we think of the word baptism, we think of what we do up here on the stage and, and immersing someone in the water and bringing them out. That, that's baptism. But Paul's not referring here to water baptism. He's talking about the Spirit's work of uniting us to Christ. So this is Spirit baptism. This is what the Spirit does when we embrace Christ by faith as our Savior. The actual practice of water baptism pictures this. So when, when we baptize someone up here, this, Romans 6.3, is what is being pictured. We are being, it's picturing our being united to, into Christ Jesus. We are being identified with everything that Christ has done, including his death and his resurrection. We are identified with Christ such that his death is for our sins. His resurrection confirms that we are indeed justified in him. Look at verse 5 of chapter 6. Knowing this, that our old self, our old self, was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves of sin. Well, that was verse 6. Let's go back and read verse 5. That was one we're supposed to read. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, we're united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So, so that means that Paul, 
all that Paul is referring to here in, in verse 29, this mysterious verse 29, is really just normal baptism. Baptism assumes death and resurrection. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, well, what does that make baptism? It makes it purposeless. It's a purposeless ritual because it pictures something that's not going to happen if there's no resurrection of the dead. Right? He says we've been raised in the likeness of his resurrection. Well, that didn't happen. So what's the point of baptism? You see where he's bringing this up? What's the point? It's purposeless. The dead are not going to rise. But baptism is not purposeless, is it? The dead are raised. Baptism is, in fact, pivotal in the life of the believer. Or at least it should be. Let me put it that way. Your baptism, when you received Christ and then received and then owned Him publicly in baptism, that should be a pivotal moment in your life. It's not just a purposeless ritual that you do because you're involved, you're a Christian and you're in a Christian church and that's what we do. When you say you receive Jesus, well, we baptize you. That's purposeless. It should be pivotal. It's all too possible for us to treat baptism in much the same way that these Corinthians were. Like it's just purposeless. It's something that we do because we're Christians. See, baptism pictures that you are identified with Christ's death and His resurrection. That means you have died to your old life. And you have been raised to new life in Christ. Is that, is that what your baptism pictures? All of you who have been baptized, is that what was pictured by how you're living your life now? If so, then that's a pivotal moment, isn't it? I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the body, I I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, who gave Himself up for me. See, that's what I mean by pivotal. Galatians 2.20 is your life verse. It describes your life right now for every day until you die. Baptism, Baptism is where you publicly declare, my life is not my own anymore. I've died with Christ. I've been raised to new life in Christ. I'm going to live now for His glory, not for my glory. I'm going to live to advance His kingdom, not build my kingdom on the earth. The dead are raised. And therefore, baptism is not purposeless. Can you say that about your baptism? Was it just a purposeless ritual that you went through because you knew you had to? Or was your baptism a pivotal moment that defines what your life is all about from now until the day that you die or Christ returns? Does it define how you live it and who you're living it for? Now, the second way that the resurrection causes you to live rightly as a disciple of Christ, it relates to personal sacrifice. Knowing the dead are raised means that you you see sacrifice as purposeful, not pointless. You see sacrifice as purposeful, not pointless. 
Why would believers endure and sacrifice in service to Christ? See, if this life is all there is, what would be the reason for Paul, for all the other apostles, exhausting themselves in ministry and risking their lives? Look at verse 30. Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting of which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If there's no resurrection of the dead, Paul would be foolishly risking his life for nothing. It would be masochistic, suffering for suffering's sake. But see, Paul was gripped by a reality that justified his risk. Christ was raised from the dead, and all believers in Christ will be raised from the dead also. And that changes everything about how we live. Our baptism is the pivotal moment when we declare our allegiance to Christ and our willingness to take up our cross daily and follow Him. And we accept that following Christ involves personal sacrifice. It may even lead to suffering, but our sacrifice and our suffering is not merely for suffering's sake. You know, think about how Every day we are lauding people who are out there taking needless risks with their life. The whole point of extreme sports is to experience the thrill that comes along with doing something risky. Those risks gain you nothing. But Paul knows the risks that he takes with his life in preaching Christ is worth it because there is a resurrection of the dead. What compels Paul to sacrifice and risk suffering is not from this world. His incentives are not, as he says here, from human motives alone in verse 32. See, he's driven by a greater purpose than that which motivates just regular people in the world. Men know that they need to learn from their mistakes, especially when those mistakes lead to pain or suffering or loss. Right? That's a tough lesson, but... Oh, I'm going to pick myself up and I'm going to learn from this. But that's not what Paul is doing. He's doing something entirely different. He says, I die daily. Paul says, every day I face the possibility of dying because I am living in willing identification with the death of Christ. I'm okay with that. In fact, if God brings that along, that's gain for me. I live for Christ, and if living for Christ brings me death, then I gain. That changes how you live. He accepts that following Christ requires sacrifice. It may lead to not only suffering, it may lead to death itself. He has taken up his cross. Why? What motivates Paul to see sacrifice as purposeful and not pointless? Let's see what else Paul said when he wrote the Corinthians later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Turn over there. Follow along with me. It's a a bigger text. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says... In verse 7, he's describing himself. He says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. That's, that's our bodies. That's us. And it's in these fragile earthen vessels that you just drop them and they break. Why would God do that? So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, we're not, but not despairing. Persecuted, not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are constantly being delivered of the death 
for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. These earthen vessels, these weak, failing, breakable earthen vessels, yet the power of God is displayed through them. He glorifies Himself through drawing straight lines with crooked sticks. He says, death works in us, but life in you, Corinthians. But having the same spirit of faith, According to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak. Knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. That's why He does what He does. He wants God to be glorified. That's why He risks what He risks. He wants God to be glorified. And the greatest glory He can see is people embracing Christ. And so He preaches Him, even if it means suffering and persecution and death. Because God gets the glory and He says, that's why I don't lose heart. Even though my outer man is decaying, my inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is produced for us an eternal weight of glory. Far beyond all comparison. We don't look at the things that we can see, but the things that are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Oh, because the dead are raised. The first thing Paul says, you can serve Him utterly. You can serve Christ utterly. Paul was willing to face danger every hour, even daily for their sakes. And I think this idea encompasses... Not just like death, constantly someone coming up with a knife or anything like that. No, it's sleepless nights. It's hunger and thirst and ceaseless labor. It's going without. It's being reviled. It's being persecuted, afflicted, beaten, imprisoned, homeless. His life belongs to Christ. His life is defined by Christ. And if serving Christ involves sacrifice and even leads to death, well, he gains the reward of being with Christ and the rewards that Christ chooses to give to him for his faithful service. This life is not to be about serving ourselves, but serving Christ and others, even to the full extent that we can offer. Because the dead are raised, like Paul, he says, you know, we, we can contend earnestly. We can, we can serve utterly and we can contend earnestly. He says, if from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? He's not talking about literally fighting wild beasts like in the arena or anything like it. He's speaking metaphorically about the great dangers that threaten his life. He's picturing the encounters he's had with men as a result of preaching Christ. Maybe he even has the mob in Ephesus that was described in Acts when, you know, if he would have gone into that midst, they would have tore him apart. He's saying that the hatred that he has faced from men who want him dead, it's like being in an arena with wild beasts. But his expectation of the future resurrection, it motivated him not to shrink back from that, but to do what Jude says. Contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. And because the dead are raised like Paul, we can also live purposefully. He says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Why do you have the testimony that you have at work, Christian? Why don't you lie and cheat and step on others to get that promotion. If the dead are not raised, don't let anything get in your way. This life is all you have. Right? But the dead are raised. And you will one day stand before Christ. This world is not your prize. Why restrain yourself? 
Right? Why not go out and commit adultery? Why not take what you want? Because you will be raised. You will face God. And in this life you have Christ and you have His fullness. You don't need all these other temporary uh, pleasures that will not last. He sets you free from purposeless, vain, meaningless existence of living for the weekend where you eat and you drink and you feel like you're going to die the next day. You know, John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, he was arrested in November of 1660 for preaching. He was an unauthorized preacher. That's why they arrested him. He was only supposed to be in jail for three months. But when they, before they would release him, they said, are you going to not preach? And he said, I can't do that. He refused to agree with them that he would refrain from preaching. And so his imprisonment, which was supposed to be over in three months, that began in November of 1660, lasted until 1672. And while he was in prison, he wrote many things. Of course, big one was... Pilgrim's Progress, but he also wrote a pamphlet called Grace Abounding. And it's in that pamphlet that he talks about the daily visits that he would get from his wife and his oldest daughter, his wife Elizabeth and his oldest daughter Mary, who was blind. He wrote this, quote, The parting with my wife and poor children hath oft been to me in prison as the pulling the flesh from my bones especially my poor blind child who lay nearer my heart than all I had besides. Oh, the thoughts of the hardships I thought my blind one might go under would break my heart to pieces. Poor child, thought I, what sorrow must thou have for thy portion in this world? It's like, John, why not just stop preaching? He could go home. He could care for his wife, Elizabeth. All he was doing was making shoelaces. That's how he provided in prison for his family. And he wrote some pamphlets. You could just go home if you just say you won't preach. And yet Bunyan persevered. Right? If temptation and fear were great, well, the comforts of God that he gave him in Scripture was greater. Here's what he read in Jeremiah. Leave your orphans behind. I will keep them alive and let your widows trust in me. I was like God was speaking directly to him. Scripture convinced him that he could trust his family with God. He knew allegiance to Christ in this life, regardless of the suffering that it brought about. He knew it was not pointless. Oh, but it was greatly purposeful. It, got God, it brought God great glory. And think of the impact it's had on the ages ever since through what he wrote while he was in prison. And we are people of another kingdom. We're of another world. There are realities of the world to come that have already laid hold of us through the Spirit. Christ has been raised from the dead. He has poured out His Spirit upon us. And whether we have a lot or whether we have a little, whether we have our good health or we have ill health, whether we have friends or we have no friends, none of that changes who Christ is. Christ chose to face troubles. His followers choose to face troubles And they are senseless and stupid and easily avoided if it were not for the fact that there is a future kingdom. There is a world to come. Paul talks about his tribulations in Ephesus. He says if if he was only looking at this life from a purely human point of view, without the hope of the resurrection, he said it'd be foolish for him to put himself in harm's way like he did. He said, I should be pursuing 
pleasure and ease instead. Why on earth would I give up immediate happiness and ease and pleasure and reputation and accomplishment? Why? What does it profit me? I need to live my best life now. Why not make my pleasure my main pursuit in life? Why sacrifice and go without what the world hoards for itself? I need my portion of the pie. The reason is because Christ has been raised from the dead. It's the truth. And knowing this, would you trade places with anyone else in the world? Would you trade places if you could just get all of Elon Musk's wealth deposited into your account if you would just deny Christ? Would you do it? You'd have everything. You'd gain the whole world. There's no resurrection of the dead. You might as well do it. But if there is a resurrection, you have just traded your soul and gained nothing of any lasting value. If you have Christ, you have more. You have afflictions too. But they're momentary. And they're light. And they're producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond anything that you have ever known. Nothing in this world can be compared to the soul-satisfying realities of the world to come. And so we don't get caught up in the things that we can see. They're just going to pass away. No, we know that there are things which are unseen and they are eternal. And so we don't lose heart. We know any sacrifices we make in Christ's name, they're not pointless. They are purposeful. This last point, I'll just try to sum it up quickly. The third way that the resurrection causes you to live rightly as a disciple of Christ, it relates to your pursuit after godliness. See, knowing the dead are raised means that you see godliness is necessary, not negotiable. Godliness is necessary, not negotiable. Why? Because Christ was raised from the dead. He says, do not be deceived in verse 33. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought. Stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, and I speak this to your shame. He says, you need to refuse to be misled. He says, don't be deceived. He's warning them, right? This is, he's warned them before in the past about deception. And what are they being deceived about? It's a, they're, they're hanging around people who think this way, and it's having a devastating effect upon their walks with God. He says, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. See, if you're going to hang around people with no understanding of God, who deny the reality of death, who don't share your hope in the resurrection, whose living and thinking are not based on the knowledge of God, guess what's going to happen? You're not going to influence them. They are going to influence you. Their behavior is going to rub off on you, not the other way around. And you're deceiving yourself if you think that you'll be the exception to this truth. Hanging around people who think the opposite of you, who view life through a godless worldview, it's going to have a corrosive influence on you and on your attitude and then on your behavior. This is true generally of unbelievers, but it is especially true of those who see that there's nothing beyond this life. If there's no resurrection, well, then godliness isn't necessary. It's negotiable. You can be godly if you want, but you don't have to be. This means that you may need to do some assessing of who you, you are spending your time with. Do they have a true knowledge of God? Is, it, is that knowledge of God evident in what they say? Is it evident in how they live? Now, I'm not saying that they're not professing Christians. 
but their lives really are not about godliness. The reality of the resurrection and the life to come is not impacting how they live. The godliness to them is negotiable. And you need to then, re- therefore, return to your senses. Because they're not influencing, you're not influencing them. They're inf- influencing you. He says, become sober-minded as you ought. Wake up. Sober up. You need to get your head on straight and get yourself around the right people who are living in light of the resurrection and in light of the coming kingdom of God. Coming to your, your senses means you stop sinning. See, that's how you know that they're influencing you. Because you're sinning. You stop viewing godliness as as necessary. It's negotiable. It's optional. That's why you're sinning. It's living in light of a true knowledge of who God is and what is to come. That's what keeps you from sinning. And then lastly, he says that then you need to repent of your unbelief. The influence that those are having who are living their life as if there is no resurrection, it's clouded your judgment about the way you ought to live as one who is owned by Jesus Christ. He says, for some have no knowledge of God, and I speak this to your shame. He says, you should be ashamed for how you have allowed yourself to think and act so ignorantly of God. Friends, how, how true this can be of me. Living as if there is no resurrection. As if there's no future glory. Living as if this life is all there is and I need to gather up all I can. We need to come to our senses and repent of its unbelief. The hope of the resurrection then is our only hope in this life and the next. Knowing the dead will be raised is essential to living your life as a disciple of Christ. And if you're here today and you have never trusted in Jesus Christ, well, come to Him today. He became a man so that He could go to the cross for you. And that in putting your trust in Him, all that you have done in your sinning against God would be put on Christ. Paid for in full by Him. You would be identified with all that He has done. His death for your sins. And then His resurrection for your being justified before God as if you had never sinned. That's all offered to you in the Gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. And you can receive Him today by faith. He didn't stay dead. He rose. And all who are in Him will rise again too. And that's what we need to be living in light of. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for these truths. We thank You for these reminders. As I prayed earlier, we need to be reminded of who You are, of what You've done, of Your very great promises. And You promise that Christ is returning. Because then at the resurrection when our very molecules are called back from wherever they might be scattered throughout the universe and you will reassemble our bodies together again only this time imperishable and untouched by death or damage or destruction then it will be declared that you have, get, you have fully conquered death you have fully overturned all that sin is, has complicated and damaged and destroyed Oh, we look forward to that day. May we live in light of it. In Jesus' name, amen.